From WAMU and NPR in Washington, I'm Derek McGinty in for Diane Ream. Speaking in Nevada, Hillary Clinton says Donald Trump is allowing the, quote, radical fringe to take over the GOP. Trump's response saying that Clinton is attempting to bully the voters and that she's a bigot. Meantime, President Obama visits flood-stricken Louisiana after being criticized for not making the trip sooner. We have much to talk about today, much of it around Donald Trump. Joining us here in the studio for the domestic hour of the Friday News Roundup, Neil King of the Wall Street Journal, Julie Pace of the Associated Press, and Josh Crosshar of the National Journal. Thanks for being here, guys. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having us. Josh, I promised myself I was going to get it right, and then I struggled with your name. It's Crosshar. That's perfect. Okay, thank you very much. I appreciate that. Now, let us talk about Donald Trump, whose position on immigration has seemed to, to, as you said, Julie, gone a 360. It really has. He started off this campaign talking about a really hardline position that involved not only building a wall at the border, but also deporting everyone who was in the country illegally and then allowing some of them to come back in. Then we saw him talk about softening that position, talk about working with people. And we should say, he used the word soften. He used the word soften. That wasn't a a media creation, talking about wanting to work with families who are here illegally. And then just as quickly as he raised that possibility, he seemed to go back to his original position of, of deportation. Putting his surrogates in really odd positions on television, trying to explain whether or not Donald Trump is actually changing his position or... Not, Neil. This isn't just a position. This is like the fundamental starting point of his campaign. When he came out in June of last year, it's been a long campaign. This was the main thing that he talked about, the main thing that resonated among people that were astonished by what he was saying, rapists coming over the border border from Mexico, et cetera. But also the main thing that really catapulted his campaign so that he was atop the polls within a matter of weeks. I think what's going on myself behind all this is that the Trump campaign itself is looking at the numbers, their own numbers, the polling numbers that are out there there for all of us to see. And they're realizing that their electorate is just too narrow right now. They cannot go forward and win a general election with the 38 or 39 percent of the American electorate who likes the hard position, not just on uh, immigration, but on his other views that he's been doing the whole minority outreach to blacks in the cities and all this other sort of stuff. So he's tried to reposition himself and soften his overall image. And, you know, we're going to see you. There's a feeling, I think, that it's just too late, that you're not going to bring around blacks who, in some cases, in some of the polling that we've done, for instance, he gets like 1% support, like basically no support. When Mitt Romney, going back four years ago, got, you know, ten, certainly in the low double digits. It's not that hard for a Republican to get 10 or 11%. If you're getting none, you're in trouble. Well, this is the type of episode that even makes his core supporters anxious because the rap on Trump is that he doesn't really have any core beliefs. He doesn't ha- he'll say anything to, to, to get what he what he wants. And the immigration issues were his basis. That, that, that is the one issue where, the, where even like the alt right folks have found common ground with, with Donald Trump. And yet he's now starting to backtrack and start starting to do a 180. I think it, you look at the, the campaign management, uh, the new, new team that Donald Trump put in place. You have Steve Bannon, the CEO of the, the campaign, who is much more of a hardliner on, on immigration. He's connected to these alt right types. And you have Kellyanne Conway, who's been urging him to, to soften his tone on immigration. So this confusion, this 180, the, it all goes to the, to the heart of the campaign. I think even even his top strategists don't really have a consensus on what to do. This is the domestic hour of the Friday News Roundup. And if you want to join our conversation, the number is 800-433-8850. But you've brought up an important point, and that is that 
if he shifts this unpopular mm-hmm. position, he risks losing his core supporters. Isn't that in some ways uh, an example of where the entire Republican Party has been as it has tried to reach out to minorities and so forth? There's a bunch of folks in the Republican Party who frankly, join the party because they didn't want to be with minorities. I mean, the reality for Republicans is that whether Donald Trump wins or loses this election, they have a huge internal problem on their hands that they have to solve. There is a massive disconnect between what party leaders think they need to do to win national elections, be a, a party that can win the White House, and what others in the party want them to do at at the Senate level, at the at the House level, at the local level. And and Donald Trump has more than anything exposed that, but he's not solving it by any means. He's actually, in some cases, I think you could argue making it worse. Mm. Any evidence that black voters are responding to Donald Trump's uh, pleas? I, I'm not aware of any. It's I think we're in some ways in need of yet the next batch of national polling that will show whether he's making some inroads on this. I think in the end, even all of his discussion, which was awkward, uh, to say the least, about the inner cities and the plight of the inner cities and the fact that he was using this rhetoric that was like seemed to be about 30 years old, is that he's talking largely to white audiences about blacks in a way that I think really is meant to appeal to white voters, particularly suburban white voters, that he might not be the racist or the bigot or whatever that the Clinton campaign is portraying him to be, that in the end, these ba- these national elections really do come down to the where the people live, and they primarily live in these big, huge suburban counties that surround the nation's cities. And right now, he's doing really badly in those areas, among educated people, among white women. Um, he's way off of the numbers that even Romney had, and Romney didn't do too well in 2012. What about the, the, uh, the Hillary Clinton pushback we saw this week? They got in a bit of a scrump this week. Right. We had, you know, she called him a racist and sort of laid out in a speech all his, you know, things he said. And in the meantime, Trump comes back. Well, Hillary's a bigot herself. Well, I mean, the Trump campaign knows that a lot of even even people who might want to support the Trump campaign are worried about him and the perceptions that he he's a racist. And even their own polling at The Washington Post reported this week that almost two thirds of voters view him as, as a racist or have having racist comments. So they're trying to at least get past that 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 blockage that that they need. They know there are a lot of people that don't like Hillary Clinton that may want to vote Republican. Uh, but but given the, the, the fact that they don't think Trump is qualified to be president and given his his tendency to make these, these racially insensitive comments. It's a major challenge. It's why he's losing Republican women. It's why he's losing college-educated white voters. And if he can't win uh, even close to the, to the numbers that Mitt Romney performed with in those groups in 2012, there's just no path to him to win the presidency. And this is actually a really interesting debate that's been happening within the Democratic Party about whether you try to paint all Republicans in the same light as Donald Trump or whether you try to cast him as so outside the mainstream that he's not even really a part of the Republican Party as we think of it. And she has made this strategic choice to leave an opening for these Republicans that Josh is talking about who don't like her but can't vote for Donald Trump, basically saying, you can side with me for four years. Th- then you can try to figure, the, figure this out going yeah, she, forward. She has been portraying, I think, fairly effectively uh, – a kind of hostile takeover of the Republican Party. And that was the way that she portrayed it in her speech on Thursday, which was that this sort of radical fringe in part emblematic of uh, or illustrated by Breitbart and Steve Bannon and the person that uh, Trump brought in to, to be the CEO of his own campaign and speaking to these same kind of suburban Republicans who are in many cases wondering what is going on with their party. And 
I think, what, you, what was the word you used? That Hillary Clinton got into a bit of a scrunch? A or scrump. A, a scrump. A scrump. <laughs> so she did. She got into a bit of a scrump this week and had actually, according to the people at Republican National Party, the worst week that she's had in months. Um, and yet she's managed to end the week by, again, shifting the subject back onto Donald Trump and some of the views that he's espoused and gotten out of, in many ways, out of her scrump. But there's much to talk well, about. Well, Neil, you mentioned the bad week that she had uh, regarding some of the things that she's had to deal with. And this is your news organization, the Associated Press, Julie, that put out the story saying basically that about half of the people that she had met with as a secretary of state, at least in the first half of her term as secretary of state, had been contributors to the Clinton Foundation. And there's allegations that this is somehow a pay for play sort of thing. Right. It, it, basically, what we did is we looked at the people who she met with who were outside of government. And, and the reason that this group is important is because these are the meetings that she would have the most discretion over. It's not as though a foreign leader is coming through town, a foreign minister who would naturally get on the secretary of state's schedule. This is where she would have more control about who gets access and who doesn't. And in looking at calendars from her, her two year, two of the years that we've been able to get access to, to these calendars, Half of those people had connections to the Clinton Foundation. And it's not as though we found examples where you can see a direct quid pro quo. Someone donates to the foundation and then gets a favor from the State Department or a decision that that leans in their direction. But it does show that. And again, this is in a lot of ways the way that Washington works. When you have financial ties to an organization, you get doors opened for you. It, It is just the reality of Washington. And it's something that the Clintons have to own because they are very much part of this system. Now, part of the pushback on this did not come from the Clinton campaign. It came from other journalistic organizations that said your methodology was bad. And the article basically was not well-founded. Again, I think it's just important to be clear about the group that we were looking at here. We're not making the case that she was spending all of her time meeting with people who were foundation donors. This is a subset of the meetings that she took as secretary of state. And also important to note, though, that this is based on calendars that the Associated Mm -hmm. Press had to sue to get access to. This is not as though these were publicly available documents that anybody could dig through. And and we haven't been able to get the full calendars for her full four years. So I think that that's an important thing that hopefully uh, journalistic organizations can side with us so on. So Josh, how badly does this hurt her? Well, it, hurt, it confirms the negatives that a lot of voters already have about her. And this is an issue about secrecy. I mean, why, why did she have a personal email server in, in the first place? I mean, we, there's, there were some negative side effects that came as a result of it that she's been having to deal with ever since the reporting has has been done. But, you know, th- there's a lot of smoke. The, the, the fact that she's felt the need to keep these emails private and, and trying to uh, obstruct and obscure what, what is in, in, in these emails. They're not yoga emails. They're not personal emails. And we're, the news organizations like the AP are really trying to dig and, and find out. And when they do find a, a pretty pretty glaring statistic, whether you agree with the methodology or you, whether you don't agree with the methodology, it raises some serious questions that have been dogging Clinton throughout the campaign. I'm Derek McGinty. You're listening to The Diane Reem Show. Welcome back to the Diane Reem Show. I'm Derek McGinty. In for Diane today, this is the Friday News Roundup. We're talking about the week's top stories. And, of course, politics is at the top of the chain today. 
Our guest, Neil King of the Wall Street Journal, Julie Pace of the AP, and Josh Kraushar of the National Journal. I want to get back into the discussion around Hillary Clinton and this foundation because the question becomes, how does the foundation have to or or does it have to change if she does win the election? Julie? Well, the Clintons have started to map out what would change if she does win the election. We saw an announcement from Bill Clinton that he would step down from the foundation board, though it's worth noting that Chelsea Clinton would stay on the board. The foundation also would stop accepting foreign donations and donations from corporations if she is president. So you are seeing them start to take some steps uh, to answer some questions about how this would work if she's president. There are obviously some people who, who wonder, why not just do it now since you're getting all of these all of these questions and criticisms two and a half months before election day. I think the thing that drives people a little crazy in this, even her supporters, is that they just always remain squishy on these things. So not they won't separate the family entirely, so they leave Chelsea on the board. Um, they've they said that they would cut off all contributions from foreign governments or foreign foreigners and from corporations, and yet they've already hinted that there could be some exceptions. The health initiative part of their organization is based in Canada, where our access to the, the, the information on what comes into that organization isn't very clear either, and it may be the case that they continue certain practices there. I mean, the challenge this thing has it's dogged her since she ran for election uh, in the Senate, ran, uh, became Secretary of State. Um, that this thing has been out there in part because, as we were talking about before, it's this is the sort of thing that presidents or politicians do when they leave politics. Mm. So, but the problem with them is that they're this duo where one has left politics, essentially is not obviously running for elected office or won't hold it anymore, and his wife is running for the highest office in the land, and yet they want to live this sort of dual life that is just extremely complicated to not have it overshadow you in the way that it has. I think that the, even Hillary supporters say, why not just come clean? Just tell everybody what's going on. Let the chips fall where they may, and then you get past some of these things. It, it does feel like we're almost past that point, at least politically, for Hillary Clinton. But you know, the big question about the Clinton Foundation is, can the Clinton Foundation be the Clinton Foundation? Can it be successful without the Clintons? And I think that's why Chelsea is sort of hanging on at the, at the foundation. <laughs> right. But then that raises the same questions about access and, 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 and pay to play and, and so on. So you I know, think she'll, they'll take her calls regardless of what happens. She's, right? she's becoming a bigger power player in the Clinton orbit. So, oh. yeah, but the, but the same conflicts of interest still apply. Let's talk to Lynn in Houston. Texas. You're on the air, Lynn. Hi. I just wanted to say a couple of things. Uh, something that disturbs me is that you look at Hillary Clinton and you look at all the things that she's done, and then you look at Nixon and you look at what he did, which was awful, and yet he was impeached. She's Secretary of State, and she did what she did and deleted all those emails. No one seems to be doing much about it, and they every society seems to be numb. Like a whole different type of people that so, so we you, associate with today, and I'm not saying Trump is great or anything. I'm just saying that every week there's something with Hillary Clinton, and if people think that she's such a great person and that she's for, uh, I don't know, I'm for, I, I lived in New York for 17 years, but I'm from the South, and. Uh, I get on. I listen to NPR, and I hear the left, the left, the left, and this is national public radio. I never hear anyone really stand for the right, and it just seems that everybody has their blinders on about Hillary. You hear all these Democratic supporters for her, and they always want to cover up what she's doing or saying it wasn't so bad, and the FBI says it's not bad, and 
it just amazes me how people can't see through this woman and tell that well, you, she's really not a good person. Well, Lynn, you, you may you may be right about that. Some of what you say there, I'm not going to dispute everything. But but let's put this out there: there are a lot of people on both sides of the aisle who note that if the Republicans had nominated almost anyone else, they would be beating Hillary Clinton right now, but they didn't. I also think it's important to note that Hillary Clinton has the war outside of Donald Trump, the worst favorability ratings right. of any presidential nominee in, in, in our generation. So these attacks have hurt her. The, if it, like you said, if it was any other Republican, the, the Republican challenger would probably have an advantage. It's because the Republicans chose to nominate Donald Trump that has sort of mitigated some of some of the, the problems that Clinton's had. Yeah, I'm interested in her thought about that there are these blinders, because a lot of people argue that actually instead of there being blinders, there's been this just like incredible, persistent, now over two decades, drumbeat of negative press coverage and just sort of a negative portrayal of Hillary Clinton from the outset, um, and aggravated by the fact that they just deal with things often in, in ways that are different, unusual, slippery. Um, are they illegal? Is it Nixon-quality um, transgressions that might you know draw the ire of the FBI? Well, no. I mean, because so far and the in FBI, fact, the FBI, FBI said the, we're not charging her. Yeah, but they, but she always adds just enough element to to fuel the suspicions, the distaste, the distrust, and that is her plight. And not talking to the press for the last several months has not helped her much. It's, you know, it doesn't help. And I know that people sometimes look at this and think that it's just reporters complaining and, and, and wanting more access. And, you know, sometimes that is the case. But I really think that it's important that people understand why we want that access and why it's important that she's not taking questions on a regular basis. And that's because we can't actually get answers to these, as Lynn puts it, problems and controversies that come up on a weekly basis. It's almost as though weeks go by and you have no access to her. And by the time you get access to her, something else has come up. Or and, the, and it, the old thing's not a story. It's anymore. not a story. And I think that if she's going to be president, she will have a responsibility to the American people, like any president does, to be transparent, much more than she has been during this campaign. Let's look at this email we get from Rebecca, who says, you've considered the Clinton Foundation. Would you enlighten us about how Trump's children will handle his businesses differently <laughs> if he is elected? I think that's a really important question. It's something that we've been asking Donald Trump uh, for months. He says that the children will have control of the businesses. He will hand them over to, to them. But we don't know what kind of firewalls there will be that that would be in place to make sure that people who are investing in a business don't have open doors into the West Wing. And I think he does need to answer that. And I, I assume in the debates this fall that that will be a line of questioning. Uh, more trouble for Hillary Clinton. And, and, and I don't want to spend too much more time on this today, but because there are other stories. But the FBI has got another 15,000 Clinton emails beyond the ones that were turned over by the State Department earlier. And now they're going through them. A federal judge has said, speed it up. And a conservative watchdog group is out with some emails, again, showing big donors to the Clinton Foundation seeking access to Clinton when she was secretary of state. How serious is this one? It's hard to say. It's just something that uh, isn't going away, clearly. And the fact that it dribbles more into the fall where things uh, can matter if they blow up and that they're big. Um, there was a thought, I think, within the Clinton camp that she had sort of escaped the worst possible consequences in July when you know, federal, uh, the FBI director came out and said, we're not there. No, we see no reason for any kind of criminal charges. And then all of a sudden, a whole another window is opened up, which doesn't have to do with the handling of classified information, but about uh, this possible 
giving access to donors sort of element. And it's just, it's it's troubling, obviously, for them and for her and for any of her supporters that there, there are things that are out there that could still blow up. And there's even, you know, we've lost touch a little bit with the WikiLeaks and the fact that there's been this hack of the DNC and Julian Assange and others are talking about how they're going to drop some bombs in September or October that will you know, impugn Hillary Clinton. So who knows what surprises await? The, the way this could get worse is if those emails suggest some kind of quid pro quo, that there was something illegal that, that took place. Some people have speculated that's why she's going to, to such great lengths to, to, to conceal what's in the emails. We don't know. But, but that's the thing that could get make this from a political problem into a, a legal problem. Elizabeth in St. Louis, Missouri, thanks for waiting. Oh, no problem. I had a comment and, a, and a, a question. The comment was, I saw a Trump rally and a lady who owned a construction company was stating, was asked about the legal immigration stance of Trump. And she's like, we're both in construction. He knows what, how much we rely on these folks, and he is not going to do what he says. And that kind of reminded me of a person who's dating a bad boyfriend saying, oh, he, he doesn't mean what he says. Oh, she's, he doesn't, you know, what he, you know, it's just justifying a bad boyfriend. And then the question was, Pence, what's his end game? I mean, how do you get this normal-looking guy, you know, to run with this dead horse? I would leave it out of Christie or Newt, but, you know, what did the GOP promise him? Those are my two things. All right. Thank you. It's an interesting thing, the question that Elizabeth raises on Trump and his own interactions with uh, with the immigration system himself, because as she was saying, if you're in construction, or in his case, uh, with the Mar-a-Lago resort that he has in Florida, he has had to interact intimately with all of this. And he has actually relied every summer on bringing people in. This is legally, but through this HB1 visa program, which itself actually is fairly controversial, bringing people in that are often paid uh, slightly less, or people argue depressed the wages in that particular area. So whether he's going to change his conduct uh, later, uh, that remains to be seen. And I, I, I see her point. And on the question of Mike Pence, I think that's a really interesting uh, question to explore because Mike Pence is someone who has been seen as a real rising star Mm -hmm. in Republican politics, someone who actually was looked at for a potential presidential run himself. He will no longer be able to separate himself from Donald Trump in the way that you've seen some Republicans try to do in this election. He's, and he's actually he's on the ticket. He's already had to do a bit of a dance. He has. You've seen him, particularly uh, when some of the conversation came up about Russia and what Russia's role has been in in meddling in U.S. elections. You've seen him separate himself a bit from Trump, but. The, in the long run, separating himself on these individual issues, I don't think will be enough because he his name is on the ticket. This is the Trump-Pence ticket. Yeah, Pence has gotten a double whammy from being Trump's running mate. Uh, first of all, he's getting the baggage that comes with being Trump's running mate, as Julie was saying. And no one still knows who he is. In fact, he was at a barber in Philadelphia uh, this week, <laughs> and the barber didn't know he was the running mate for Donald Trump. So he's getting all the baggage and none of the, none of the positive stuff that comes with being on the national ticket. Well, it'll be interesting to see when he and Tim Kaine have their debate later on in the fall as to whether or not... Uh, Perhaps his name recognition or face recognition goes up a bit. Those two, though, are so so much less controversial, I'll say, than their two, than the tops of the ticket. It, it, it could be a kind of a bland debate. Yeah, I think that it's safe to say that the ratings for the vice presidential debate won't come close to the, the Palin-Biden uh, debate in 2008. You know, there are some new polls out there showing Clinton with a double-digit lead now. Is it too early to start really looking at this and going... It's starting to get out of reach. I don't think it's too early if you look at it in this context. In 2012, when Obama was running against Romney, the numbers that we saw in the summer 
really stayed pretty consistent through Election Day. There were uh, spikes and, and dips here and there, but the fundamentals of the election were set in the summer. And I think that that, looking at the fundamentals more than an individual poll here or there, is, is most important. We have not seen Donald Trump identify a path to 270. We've not seen him pick up support in these industrial Midwestern states. We've not seen him be able to expand his base and draw support from African-Americans, from Hispanics, increase his support from women. And until you see him do that, I'm just not sure that we can that we can discount some of these polls right now. The reality is that we've never seen in modern times and modern polling a candidate come back in late August when they were down by an, you know, an average running average of five percentage points and go on to win the election. It just doesn't happen. Um, there's a lot people... of things have happened this year that yeah. just yeah. don't yeah. happen. Yeah. No, I know. That's true. <laughs> uh, the thing that the challenge with Trump is that in right now this race is focused on Florida, Ohio, North Carolina and Pennsylvania mm. above all. And that's where so far he's finally come out spending money. That's where he's spending it. If he loses one of those states and at the moment he's either tied or trailing and all, there's basically no way that he can win the, uh, the election. I'm Derek McGinty in for Diane Ream and you're listening to The Diane Ream Show. Let's get back to our phone calls. Robert in Dallas, thanks for calling. You bet. Just two questions. Um, I feel like it seems like we talk about all of these quote-unquote scandals of Hillary Clinton over the years. But when we're discussing them, we never end with it was investigated and nothing was found. So it seems like the media works hard to perpetuate the the quote-unquote question mark. And the second question I had was, um, I'm hearing a new term this morning on your show, alt-right. And I'm curious, what is that? Hmm. You know, I'm glad you brought that up, Robert, because I meant to get more into that when we began to talk about it. Four years ago, it was the Tea Party, right? Hmm. That was the new uh, face of the Republican Party, the conservative side of the Republican Party. Now we're hearing about this alt-right. How is it different from the Tea Party? Where did it come from? What's going on? Well, the alt-right is a term that's been used to essentially separate uh, a piece of uh, the Republican Party from what's widely viewed as the mainstream conservative movement. And this is a piece of the party that uh, has some white nationalist elements that feels like, quote-unquote, traditional American values are being undermined. If you go on to the Breitbart website, you will see a lot of pieces that reflect the tenor of the alt-right. Donald Trump, of course, has hired the uh, head of Breitbart to now run his campaign. And you're seeing another in other ways, a merging of the Trump campaign and the alt-right. Uh, it has been interesting to hear Republicans the last couple of days say, oh, I don't know what you're talking about with the alt-right, even though we all know what, <laughs> what has been going on. Well, it's, it's fair to say that the alt-right's bark is worse than its bite, because if you look at the percentage of, of Republican voters that uh, Trump supporters even that, that share Breitbart's uh, worldview, I, I think it's a pretty small percentage. But there is a more benign uh, view of what the alt-right is, which is sort of uh, anti-immigration, anti-free trade, and against foreign intervention, anti-war uh, movement. Ron Paul, Ron Paul was, was actually sort of alt-right in, in and you could Well, if that's what it is, then you could almost say that it has, it's got some core supporters that could have voted for Bernie Sanders. There is, and there is 
is a little bit of overlap, but I mean, that's why you see some of this overlap and why Trump is going to the lengths that he's done to, to court Bernie Sanders supporters. So it is sort of a, I mean, some people may have identified as Democrats, you know, not that long ago, uh, but it is a very populist. Uh, and, and the people that are, you know, again, this is the more benign definition, not not the Hillary Clinton uh, version uh, that she, she spoke about yesterday. But there is sort of a populist, anti-trade, anti-globalist uh, worldview that, that it's, dominates. It's, it's, also, okay. it's, it's also very identity based, though, and it very much is about, as Julie was saying, this like what's happened to our country, all this political correctness won't stand up for the traditional values and sort of the traditional white way of life. It's fascinating. If anybody's on Twitter, there's been a really interesting hashtag over the last couple of days, hashtag what alt-right means. Or no, sorry, alt-right means. means. And then people would complete the sentence, alt-right means this, this, this. And so some people have you know, disparaged what alt-right means, but there's been a lot of people are saying, this is what the alt-right is all about. We did a story yesterday, uh, actually that ran yesterday, when she was Hillary Clinton was giving her speech about how overjoyed the alt-right was by the fact that she, a major presidential candidate was going to be devoting her speech to them, essentially. And they are overjoyed because, just as the caller says, what is this thing? And all of a sudden, people are like, what is this thing? They're looking it up. They're Googling it. And so In other words, they're movement, glad for some attention, is what yes, you're saying. Yes, precisely. All right. Neil King is a global economics editor and deputy Washington bureau chief at The Wall Street Journal. Josh Kraushaar is political editor at The National Journal, and Julie Pace is White House correspondent with the Associated Press. We're having our weekly conversation on the big national stories dominated this week by politics. I'm Derek McGinty, and you're listening to The Diane Reem Show. back to the Diane Reem Show. I'm Derek McGinty sitting in for Diane as we continue our conversation around the top news stories of the week, domestically anyway. The number here, 800-433-8850, 800-433-8850. And I should note for you that we are streaming video of this hour's Friday News Roundup live on the web on drshow.org. Forgive me if I look a little scruffy. I didn't shave this morning, so, you know, sometimes... <laughs> But in any case, let's go back to some poll numbers that come out that say 52 percent of Republicans, according to Gallup, wish that they had nominated somebody else. Buyer's remorse? A little bit of buyer's remorse. But, you know, we were just talking about this in the break, that Trump did not get the majority of Republicans to vote for him in the primary. You had this huge Republican field, 17 candidates at its peak, and the vote was really dispersed throughout a lot of those different uh, options. So he has had a struggle uniting the Republican Party from the very beginning, and I think that's what you're seeing reflected in that number. It's worth noting that the same poll found that 42% of Democrats wish they had some other, someone other than Hillary Clinton. So a better number than Trump had, but still not great. Uh, I, I don't know if it was in the same poll, but considering that this would mean like, well, are people going to turn their attention to the other candidates? And there are, are other candidates out there. Uh, Gary Johnson, Jill Stein uh, found that about two thirds of voters had never heard of either of those two Ooh, people. So that doesn't a, bode well. There's a real name recognition. Well, problem. well, you know, speaking of other other candidates, one person who seems to be benefiting from some of the, the discord around Clinton and Trump 
is the guy who's got the job now. <laughs> President Obama's approval rating's been up over 50% for the last couple of months, but this is the first time it's been consistently that high in quite some time. But he took some heat this week because he didn't go down to visit the flooded portions of Louisiana as quickly as some would have liked. Trump blasted him for it. Any of that stick? I don't know if it'll stick. I mean, the fact that the president's approval rating has been consistently around 50 percent for the last few months is a good sign for Hillary Clinton. If, 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 if people believe Trump's sort of dystopian view of, of the country, uh, you probably would see the president's job approval lower. But I will say on the on the hurricane cleanup, he, if, if this was George W. Bush, I, I think it would be a lot. He'd be under a lot more more scrutiny. And the fact that he went after the governor of Louisiana, the Democratic governor of Louisiana, said it would only distract from the cleanup efforts. And then the next day, he uh, showed up. Obama came ne- the next week. <laughs> The challenge with that, with the flood there, is it's been this incredible thing. People say the worst natural disaster since Superstorm Sandy four years ago, almost yeah. exactly four years ago, and yet much of the chagrin of the governor of Louisiana, it has received unbelievably little attention. In part because there was no buildup of hurricane coming ashore, had no name like Katrina or Sandy, and uh, yeah, there was some criticism, and there is a real point to be made. The idea that a president swoops into a disaster area and thereby improves things. I mean, the reality is that he thereby uh, distracts and causes a big fuss and confusion by being there. And I'm not trying to defend what he did because he was up in Martha's Vineyard golfing. And, of course, a lot was made of the fact that instead of being there, he was golfing. But the idea that a president landing in a disaster area is going to make things better is disputable. Bush took so much heat for flying over Katrina at the time. But was that more about the performance of the federal government Mm. at large? Right. I think that I think that the Katrina example has become a little bit warped. You know, I've covered this president in the White House for eight years now almost. And every time there is a flood, a hurricane, a tornado, name a natural disaster, there's a conversation that starts about whether he should go and if he decides to go, when he should go. If you have ever seen the presidential motorcade roll through the streets of Washington, D.C. or or your hometown, you know the enormous manpower that it takes. I mean, this is not really a spin line. It actually does take enormous law enforcement resources to, to prepare and protect a presidential visit. And you're then taking those resources away from uh, the actual recovery. And I think that the Bush criticism... Now we look at that picture of him flying over and we think that that's what it was about, him not being on the ground. But it was more about what was happening on the ground, that the federal response was not fast enough, that it seemed to be bungled, that Bush seemed to be crediting people who actually were not fulfilling their responsibilities. And the other problem was you had video like no one had ever seen of all these people on the roofs of their homes with signs begging for help. None of us had ever seen anything like that before. We couldn't believe that the government didn't seem to be able to ameliorate the problem fast enough. There's another critique that, that you know, when you have a big city or something on the coast like Superstorm Sandy, it gets un- inordinate, and deservedly so, inordinate media attention. There, there was flooding in West Virginia in, in July, and actually if someone came up to me and said, why aren't you covering the, the flooding and, and the displacement of thousands of people in West Virginia? And it, we're not a swing state. We're not, we're not a, you know, a big political battle. Was it also because it wasn't, didn't have a lot of big cities? And you don't have, it's in, it's in rural parts of, of, of the state, and, but, but it affected a whole lot of people, and it hasn't gotten that, that degree of media attention. So I think this also kind of fell under that. That same category. It was in Baton Rouge, and, and it didn't get nearly the, the same initial coverage that, that the, the New Jersey storm, Superstorm Sandy or Katrina, uh, got initially. Back to our phone lines. Kathy in Charlotte, North Carolina. Thanks for holding on. Thank you. I just want to say it's an honor to be talking to all these learned people, and um, I listen to the show daily. My first um, point slash 
and we can wrap a question around that is, is nowadays with all the media, the instant access to what anybody says and ability to dig in electronically and find things on uh, Hillary Clinton, if you go back, all the way back to George Washington and going forward when the po- politics really started heating up in, in our founding country, every president, every vice president, if you really look, and if we had the ability to go back digitally and look, you would find all sorts of things that she's getting um, blasted for. Number two, she is trying. I feel she's trying. And w- can you fault somebody who goes, okay, this might have been a mistake. I'm going forward but I'm still trying. I'm still trying to get to the people. Next thing with Donald Trump, anybody watched any of his shows, anybody look at any of his business dealings all over the world. He is a businessman through and through. If he, and he's at the top, he rules his empire. He does not even listen to his own advisors. If he can't get and listen to his advisors to get things done within his own campaign, what makes anybody think that he can get people in Congress together, listen to them, and be able to get things that he wants passed? Right. passed let's let's, let's talk about some Congress. of what you said, Kathy. I want to stop you there so we can get to some of the points you make. First of all, she says, hey, Hillary's trying. She's doing the best she can. But I think the argument might be, well, has she said, I'm sorry, I've made some mistakes, and now I want to move forward? You know, if you talk to people who are close to the Clintons, they make a, a similar point that this is a woman who is battle-tested, has spent decades in the political spotlight, has been the target of a lot of criticism, and keeps pushing forward, feels a responsibility to to be involved in public service and, and fight for a lot of what she believes in. I, I think that that is a very valid point from the perspective of Clinton supporters. At the same time, you know, there is this this thing with the Clintons when these controversies come up it's always right on the line and their response is never quite clear it's very rare to have the Clintons initially come out and say we screwed up I'm sorry we shouldn't have done it this way they may get there eventually but it often takes weeks months sometimes years I just want to pick up on her last point. I, I do think it's interesting. If so, Trump comes out. One of his main selling points was, "I'm a businessman. I know how to get things done." And Romney had a similar argument as that. But Romney, if you look back at his campaign, actually ran a really good campaign—the kind of campaign with a few glitches that you would ho- you would expect a businessman to show that he knows how to run things. In the case of, of Trump, it's amazing because he had a show that was based all on his adroitness in hiring people. And one thing he has not been able to do is hire <laughs> very good people because he's already fired how many of his campaign managers? I mean, he's had the most extraordinary staff upheavals late in a campaign that we've ever seen before. And he's not running a good campaign when it comes down to the fundamentals of running a campaign. You know, it's all based on rallies. That's it, all he's actually really doing. You know, I would make the argument that the idea of a businessman being a good politician is a myth. Mm. And if you look back at our great presidents, most of them were career politicians, everybody from Abe Lincoln to Franklin Roosevelt to Teddy Roosevelt. Most of them were not businessmen. And and, and it's, a, it's I think it's a myth that the businessman can step in and say, I'm going to run government like a business because government's not a business. It doesn't work that way. It's not a business. And, and it <laughs> is true. I mean, this is one of those things that you hear from voters a lot. And I think it's real. I'm not I'm not casting dispersions on the idea of wanting somebody who has business experience, who thinks more like an executive. But in practice, uh, the government just runs differently. And there are so many issues that cross your desk as president that would never 
land on your radar as a business person. Well, the biggest thing may be what the caller suggested in some ways was that, you know, Trump is used to just telling people what to do. If you're a businessman, you fire the folks who aren't doing what you say. The president's power really is a lot of it's based around being able to persuade and Trump to has, argue. And he, yeah, Trump has not been able to, to do that. And it's, it's also there are a lot of Republican operatives that love to work on a presidential campaign because it's a launching pad for, for their own careers. But Trump has had a heck of a time, even people he's interviewed and might have expressed some interest to actually convince them that he's running a professional operation, one that, that's capable of winning the, this presidential election. So it's not even the, just the lack of, 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 of his persuasive ability. It's the fact that he's not able to convince the top Republican operatives in Washington that he's able to run an organization that, that they could be proud of working with. I'm going to shift gears very quickly because there was a story that caught a lot of attention earlier in this week that had to do with the life-saving EpiPen. Mm-hmm. Uh, it says it's an el- as you to eject, inject epinephrine if you have an allergic reaction that may be calling, causing anaphylaxis, which closes your throat. These things cost a lot of money, a lot more money than people think they should, and it was all thrown up on the desk of Congress earlier this week. Yeah, I mean, what we've seen happen is a lot of attention focused on the price increase for the EpiPen and a lot of questions about why the price has increased so quickly. And I think part of the reason that this is getting so much attention, and Josh and I were talking about this earlier, is that you know we've had these stories about drug companies, manufacturers that have been raising prices of, of various medications. And, and often there are medications that people don't use that they're not aware of. The EpiPen is something that pretty much everyone is aware of. It's something that people keep in their pocket, in their in their purse. And and the idea that such a, a basic life-saving medication has a price that is just skyrocketing with no clear answer about why, I think is concerning to a lot of people. The other thing that's really interesting about the EpiPen is it has nothing to do with a medication, which is just a synthetic kind of adrenaline, and which is widely available. It's all about the technique, the technology of delivering it. And you know, there's a lot of uh, attention rightly being focused on the company, but the fact is, like, the, there are people that have pushed forward on trying to do a generic version of the EpiPen. The FDA turned one down in February without even saying why they turned it down. Uh, they, the company just happens to have developed this really good way to deliver this jolt of adrenaline to counteract these problems. Um, but now the owner fixed. of the company, though, is the daughter of U.S. Senator Joe Manchin, right? And does that have anything to do with the, 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 way, the way it's been able to raise prices? Um, I don't know whether it's anything to do with their ability to raise prices, but this is the kind of protection. I mean, it doesn't have something to do with the FDA turning down well, a that's generic what I was trying to I mean, get. Yeah. There's a, there are, in the fact, there's not a lot of transparency in these things, and there is a lot of politics involved in these, and the money is huge. The other thing, I think, in terms of the impact, people have noted that uh, because of various changes, some brought about by Obamacare and, and other forces, that people have turned a lot more to these high-deductible insurance, uh, health insurance plans. So you, it sounds good because you're like, well, what am I really going to need? And then all of a sudden it's like, whoa, I need to get these EpiPins for my kids or for myself. They're $600 for a pair. Now I'm paying $400 for that one before I was paying $100 and, for it. And so. we should note they have to be replaced every year because the drug wears out. It, it fades away. Yeah, no, the, one, one of the things that makes this uh, so potent of a political issue is that you do have bipartisan buy-in. Amy Klobuchar, the senator from Minnesota, Chuck Grassley from the Republican from Iowa are really leading the, 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 the charge on this. I'm Derek McGinty, and you're listening to The Diane Reem Show. And we're going back to take at least one more phone call. Marvin in Dallas, Texas, you're on the air. Hi, uh, my name is Marvin Donahoe from Dallas, Texas. I'm an African-American. I usually vote, vote Democrat, but I'm going to vote Republican. Uh, I think Donald Trump is the man that needs to be in charge. Uh, he's trustworthy. He tells you up front what he wants, what he wants to happen. He want to get rid of NASA. He want to get rid of this immigration stuff. 
the contents going back to a travel agency thing, going back to Super Predator, going back to um, um, I never had sexual relations with this woman. Not trustworthy. All right, fair enough, Marvin. Let me ask you a couple of quick questions, if I can, before our time runs out. First of all, does Donald Trump's seeming change of position or whatever it is regarding immigration bother you? No, I mean, because uh, he's just trying to work with you. He's just trying to work with whatever uh, the, uh, the immigration is right there. But I think he's going to he's going to stay stay fast on it. He's going to when he when he, he's going to basically tell you this is not right. Um, this is not you can't just come into this country and expect to get amnesty and just jump in front of the line. And they and then and, and these uh, uh, Mexican Americans or Mexican people are moving into my neighborhood, not spoken with them. All right. And, they, and I asked them why don't they go through it eagle, uh, legally? And they tell me they don't have to. They can do it illegally, and they're going to get amnesty anyway. All right, Neil King, you wanted to respond. Marvin, I'm just curious if you find similar support or sentiment among friends of yours, family. Do you think your views on Trump versus Clinton are, are widespread among uh, people that you hang around with? Uh, well, when I talk to them and I and I, I tell them what I think, and we talk about it, they they begin to get real quiet and start thinking long and hard what I'm saying. And I think I hit a point, and I think they know I'm right. Well, let me ask you this one further question. Does it bother you at all that Trump was the leader of the one of the leaders of the birther movement trying to uh, de- delegitimize the president? No, of the United because States? He's, he's a front. He's truthful. He tells you what he's about. He don't hide it. Okay. He tells you what he feels. I mean, there are definitely populist cross currents in, in this electorate. And in fact, the, the, one of the strongest uh, moods that we, we can see is that people want change. People are kind of tired of the same old, same old. They don't like the political establishment in either party. We saw that with Bernie Sanders. We saw, so we've, we're seeing it right now with Donald Trump. But, but Trump's baggage, as we've been, been alluding to, is what really weighs him down and makes him a, a however, poor However, when you listen to Marvin from Dallas, what he seems to be saying, and I just wonder if this is a more of a widespread thing, is I don't care what you Beltway insiders are talking yeah. about. This is my guy, and he's got to really mess up for me not to like him. Absolutely. I mean, what we have found is that Trump supporters are intensely loyal, and there is very little that Trump can do or say that shakes them he from even supporting said that, him. Right? You know, he could go and shoot somebody out on Fifth Avenue. He, right? he made that point. We have been having our conversation on the weekly top stories, uh, the domestic angle, and my guests have been Neil King, Global Economics Editor and Deputy Washington Bureau Chief at the Wall Street Journal, Josh Kraushar, Political Editor of the National Journal, and Julie Pace, White House Correspondent at the Associated Press. I'm Derek McGinty, and for Diane Ream, I want to thank you for listening to the Diane Ream Show. We've gotten into all the politics, and if there were some stories we didn't get to, we apologize, but uh, you can check us out on Twitter and on Facebook and the various other social media. Have a great afternoon. The Diane Ream Show is produced by Sandra Pinkert, Denise Couture, Rebecca Kaufman, Lisa Dunn, Alexandra Botee, Susan Casey, Danielle Knight, and Allison Brody. The engineer is Alex Drewenskis. Visit drshow.org for audio archives, transcripts, and podcasts. Our email address is drshow at wamu.org. And we're on Facebook and Twitter. This program comes to you from American University in Washington. This is NPR.